And I said, Billy, shouldn't we be getting dressed to go to dinner? And she said, oh, Jerry, don't you know what time it is? It was a little after 10. I'd passed out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I had no excuse. I wasn't mad at anybody. I wasn't celebrating anything. I had no reason in the world to drink the way I drank that day. But I was ashamed of myself. I was sick of what I was and what I wasn't. And I got up and I went to the bar and I mixed a big drink. I wanted oblivion and it knocked me out. God willing, that's the last drink I'll ever take. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, howdy folks, that was the voice of Jerry J that you heard at the beginning of this episode. I'm going to talk more about him in just a moment, but first things first, this episode, the one you're listening to right here, right now, at this very moment... (laughs) is brought to you by Maria and Beverly. Maria and Beverly, you know what they did? They went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the Donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Maria and Beverly, for your generous contribution. This episode goes right out to you. All right, everybody. So, and you know, before I begin this episode, I just have to mention this. This is completely a side note, but I was sitting here and I was beginning to record and, well, wait a sec, my wife just walked in and I don't know what she's looking for, but this is very... No, I'm not testing. I'm actually recording an episode right now. (laughs) What do you need, sweetie? Okay, well, (laughs) thanks a lot for coming in. (laughs) But the thing I was going to tell you all about was this, is that my daughter had come in here. You know, you would think they would like listen before they come into the studio here. Or maybe I just need one of those big on-air type of things that say, you know, live recording in process or whatever. But nonetheless, my daughter came in here right before my wife did to show me her brand new dress that she got. And uh, oh my goodness. And I know those of you who have children uh, know exactly what I'm talking about, but it is incredible how quickly they grow up. And I look at both of my kids and you know, there's a song uh, called Butterfly Kisses out there. And in that song, it says, after all that I've done wrong, 
I must have done something right. And uh, uh, that's what it reminds me of when my daughter walks in and my son walks in and even my wife when they walk in and I think to myself, after all that I've done wrong, and believe me, folks, I have done plenty wrong, I must have done something right. Okay, so that was a little off-the-cuff stuff that you got there. So anyway, as I mentioned, Jerry Jones's voice was the one that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And, and let me say this. I can say his last name because Mr. Jerry passed away in 2014. And uh, I'm a bit nervous about this particular episode because I'm trying something a little bit different out. In other words, I'm releasing a, I guess what you call a speaker tape. Uh, and I know tapes aren't actually utilized anymore from, but when I first got sober back in the day, we used to play cassette tapes, uh, back when we walked to school uphill both ways and we lived in a shoebox, uh, you know, back in the day, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you have to put up with my uh, silliness. But anyway, this episode is inspired by, is brought to you by Maria and Beverly, but it is inspired by my good friend, Tony D. All right. So here's what happened. Tony D had mentioned to me one day that Jerry J had had a huge effect on his sobriety. Basically through him, listen to this recording that you are going to be listening to right now. And I asked Tony to send me a message and see if he could kind of sum up what had done or what had happened to him, if you will. And he said it was the first speaker recording that he had ever heard. And it finally, in big capital letters, uh, was able to have him see how alcohol alcohol had a hold of him. That I was powerless and I had to have help. So let me go ahead and read what Tony wrote because I butchered that. It was the first speaker rep- recording I ever heard and it helped me finally see how alcohol had a hold of me that I was powerless and I had to have help exclamation point. In fact, Tony actually came up with the title of this episode. We're going to call it Texas Lawyer Finds a Way Out. So I said to myself, self, we have a plethora of people out there listening to the Sober Speak podcast in early sobriety. And if this speaker had that big of an impact on my friend Tony, well, I'm hoping that that particular magic slash vibe slash juju slash spirit, whatever you want to call it. I hope you get my drift. Are you picking up when I'm laying down, folks? I hope that that juju can carry through to the Sober Speak listeners. Now, before I go on, we're going to have what I call a listener feedback sandwich tonight. In other words... We're going to do a little listener feedback on the front end, and we're going to do some listener feedback on the back end. And what I want to do on the 
front end is go over some, just some random Facebook comments that I pulled out of the Facebook group before I actually sat down and started to do this particular introduction. And uh, so, so keep in mind that if you do want to join the secret Facebook group, just send me your email address that is associated with your uh, a Facebook account to John, J-O-H-N, at Soberspeak.com. And by the way, if you do want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at at Soberspeak, all one word. I read all of my direct messages, and I would love to hear from you. Yes, you. Yes, you. Yes, turn up the volume. I'm talking about you. All right, well, I am in a mood this evening. All right, so here we go. Some Facebook comments from Catherine. Catherine wrote in and she says, Hi, I'm Catherine. I'm an alcoholic. I live in Niagara on the Lake, Ontario, Canada. I have been there, Miss Catherine. Uh, but nonetheless, my dry date. You know, I just thought about. I just thought about this. She says Canada and dry date. That would be something kin, akin to Canada dry, which is that soft drink. Anyway, my dry date is July nineteenth, two thousand seventeen. After forty plus, forty five plus years of abusing myself, I finally admitted my life was unmanageable. Good for you, Miss Catherine. Although still young in recovery, I am grateful to have a new beginning, feeling blessed. Well, I'm feeling blessed too, Miss Catherine, and congratulations on your start in sobriety. It's so good to hear. Here's some other people who just introduced themselves coming into the group. They said, hi, I'm Heather. I'm Heather. I'm an alcoholic living in London, UK, sobriety date 13 December 1996. Melanie wrote in. She said, I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and I've been clean and sober since March 11, 2013 in Alcoholics Anonymous. I live on the Oregon coast. Is it Oregon or Oregon? Anyway, nonetheless, Tanya wrote in and she says, hello. Oh, this was a very, I I love this one. She said, hello, I am new to the group. I have many questions and I'm happy to have found the Sober Speak podcast. It has shed a new light for me on my new way to recovery. I am going to my first AA meeting tonight. I don't know what to expect, but I'm going in with an open heart. What advice do you have to give to a newbie? And she received just tons of comments. I just picked out a couple here. One was from Maria. And Maria said, you've already begun your step work by, quote, going with an open heart and being humble for and asking for help. One, you may have to try different times groups to find the right fit. Let God lead you. Two, don't worry if it all sounds foreign to you. <laughs> I agree with that. It's a new language. Be gentle with yourself. Three, get a sponsor, someone who can hold your hand and walk you through this new journey. You can always ask someone to be your quote temporary sponsor. When I was new, when I was new, I was terrified that getting a sponsor would mean that it was going to be that I was going to be super glued to them for the rest of my life. (laughs) 
<laughs> so because of my fear, I went a long time without a sponsor. Big mistake, triple uh, triple exclamation point. You can ask someone to take you through the steps, but no one's feelings will be hurt even if it's not the right fit for both of you. Your main focus is sobriety. Number four, let God work his magic. Quote, we ask God to direct our thinking. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. The big book, page 86. Well, that is great advice, Miss Maria. I'm glad you chimed in for Miss Tanya and for the others to see. Catherine also provided a, uh, a suggestion here. She said, oh, let me back up. So I had asked in the group, which I have a couple times, do you have any suggestions for me? Any questions that you want me to ask the Sober Speak guests? Because, you know, I'm just one voice with one thought process and I'm looking for different ideas on what I should be asking these folks. But Catherine suggested, she said, I appreciate when your speakers select a passage from the big book. Perhaps a quote best of passages best of passages episodes on what passage speaks to that person and why it would be like a big book study podcast style John you already have them read a select paragraph perhaps just expand on that it amazes me the times I have read the big book and each person can translate it for their own needs. It's a MacGyver of an AA tool. So <laughs> MacGyver from uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, just in case you don't get that reference. Okay, so I, first of all, I like that suggestion a lot, Catherine. It, it would take a little bit of time for me to sit down and piece all that together, uh, but I absolutely love it. But I also realized after reading the suggestion that what I had been doing is... Um, I had asked people back in the beginning if they would bring over a piece of literature to read before we start. Uh, When I say a piece of literature, usually from the AA literature, some passage that meant something to them. And uh, you know what? I had stopped doing that. So the guest I had in uh, this past week, I asked them, hey, can you bring in some AA literature? And it's going to be a while before I release that episode. But I got back on track with that. And thank goodness it was it was it was strictly due to Catherine's suggestion and uh, and, and I so appreciate that I so appreciated that okay Toby posted in the Facebook group he had a question as well he said anybody in the group start working toward sobriety in their early mid 20s it's incredibly hard for me not to drink when the culture of young adults is centered around alcohol what are some ways that you got through it any and all advice slash words of wisdom would be appreciated. While wow, he just got waylaid with comments and suggestions. And I, I, I can't, I'm sorry, read all the suggestions, but I did pick out one here real quickly. And this was from Julie. Julie wrote in and she said, I got sober at 24 in 1979. I stopped hanging with the old playmates. I don't think they noticed. (laughs) I stopped going to the old playgrounds. I started going to a young people's group. 
And I made a good group of sober and clean friends, and we started doing things together. Movies, dances, concerts. Some of them are still sober 40 years later. I have a life that is beyond my wildest dreams. I am married, got my family back. I have a great career, but most of all, I have passed along what was given to me. God bless you, Julie. It's not a vicarious thrill that I look for in early sobriety. It is a life filled with joy and purpose. This is possible. If I can do it, anyone can do it. One day at a time, still going to meetings and still doing the deal. Thanks, Julie, for responding to Toby. And see, this is really, really what I was looking for. Uh, uh, I, I kept trying to think of, you know, I'm just one voice out here in the community and I can bring in the guests that I have, but I know that there are tons of people and how can we support each other? And I'm so thankful, so thankful that we have the Facebook group, that we have Instagram, uh, that we have email, you know, uh, that we have uh, just all kinds of ways for you to, for all of you to communicate with each other. Now, it is time Folks, it is now the time for Mr. Jerry J. Do enjoy. And remember, we will have additional feedback, listener feedback, that is, at the end of this episode. They've given me a seatbelt here. I guess they think I'll fall over. I don't know. <laughs> My name's Jerry Jones, and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober by the grace of God uh, and the steps since January the 1st of 1973, for which I'm very grateful. I, uh, I don't take a lot of credit for that. Uh, you know, I just showed up and kept, kept going. And if you, some of the old timer says, if you just don't drink one day at a time and don't die, it happens to you sooner or later. <laughs> I, uh, I'm many things. I'm the adult spouse of an Alamon. <laughs> Somebody has to do that. Uh, I'm a recovering lawyer. I haven't sent any bills, took any questions, appeared in any courts for about eight or nine years, and I've, my, my recovery's going very well. I'm, <laughs> So don't bother to ask me any questions because you'll get no current information, I'll tell you that. I uh, usually, I like to start off, I used to like to start off with lawyer jokes. But as the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Rogers, said the other day, uh, I found that lawyers don't laugh and everybody else takes it seriously. So I quit telling them. <laughs> I uh, came to Alcoholics Anonymous uh, not because I wanted to, uh, but because I, I uh, didn't know exactly what was wrong with me. I didn't think probably I was an alcoholic. I had a difficulty with that word. Uh, it didn't come easily to me when I tried to say it. It stuck in my throat. Uh, and I'd spend the whole meeting trying to listen, uh, trying to 
to think how I was going to say it when it came my turn, and it, it was hard for me. And uh, then one day I remembered, uh, I remembered a story from my childhood that uh, helped me understand what an alcoholic was. Uh, it made it easier for me. I had a dog. I had a dog named Patches. Patches was mostly a bulldog. He was a big fella, and he, uh, he was a hero because he had killed a badger in a nose-to-nose fight. It had taken a couple hours to, for him to get that job done, but he had finally got it done. And uh, he uh, was celebrated throughout the community because most dogs can't whip badgers. Uh, the badger weighed one more pound than he did, so it was a pretty even fight. Uh, to give you a little insight into his personality, Patches uh, would go up in the field where the carcass of that badger was, and for about a week he'd pick it up every day and just shake hell out of it, just, <laughs> just to let the badger know if he was going to be reincarnated or anything like that. By God, he was still there and still willing to play. Uh, <laughs> He was a, a dog of commitment. When he committed to something, he really did it. Uh, the day I'm going to tell you about, he was in our yard. He was laying there. With, he had no problems. He was a hero. He was well-fed. He was well-loved. He had no competition in the barnyard. He was just there and just king of the roost. And into our yard came the neighbor's boar hog, big hog, ugly hog, long yellow tusk, ambled into the yard and Patches made a bulldog-like decision to get hold of the hog. And he went sailing into that hog and caught hold of him. The hog began to squeal. The dog was barking. My dad came out of the barn, and he got out there, and he was cussing and kicking hogs and dogs. I saw this fray going on. I went running into the middle of the damn thing. My mother saw her kid going into this hog and dog fray, and there was chaos in the barnyard. Everybody there had a problem. <laughs> and they all knew the solution to the problem. Patches turned loose the damned hog. Turn him loose. Well, he didn't turn him loose, but he, the hog got him up against a barn and drug him off and wheeled around and laid up on the shoulder and neck with one of those long tusks. And he was bleeding, and Dad caught him about that time and picked him up, and he was snapping and scarling. And Dad took him over to a water hydrant and ran cold water on him, and I was sent to the barn to get some pine tar to put on the stop the blood. Eh, things settled down. Things settled down. And we turned him loose, and he went right back and got hold of the damn hog again. And it was the same thing. There was barking and biting and cussing, kicking and screaming and wringing of hands. The hog knew the problem, the solution, and we knew the solution. Everybody knew the solution to the problem. Patches turned loose the damned hog. Turn him loose. Well, he finally came off again. And this time my dad realized that Patches was not himself. Patches seems to be emotionally disturbed. <laughs> Patches might have been considered crazy as hell because that, that boar hog was a lot bigger than he was and Patches uh, needed restraint. What it was, we committed him. That's what we did. Some of you know about that. Uh, we chained him to the water hydrant. And uh, Dad got in the pickup and drove the hog home 
and I was given the job of counseling with patches. <laughs> I was one of the first Hoganon counselors in West Texas, and pro sure, for sure I was the first Hoganon, because I, I was the only one around that way. And I talked to that dog. I talked to that dog in deep and penetrating ways. I asked him, you know, have you ever had a good day getting hold of hogs? <laughs> what does your family think of it when you get a hold of hogs? <laughs> Is there any peace and contentment in your life while you're getting a hold of hogs? Do they taste good? <laughs> what the hell do you get out of this thing except misery? And you know, in about two hours, I had him laying down. He wasn't tugging at the chain anymore. He had his tongue out and that little silly smile on his face that bulldogs get. He was panting a little bit. He was laying down on the ground. So I went and got my dad and I said, Patches has recovered. <laughs> and dad said, I'll go look at him because I've had a fair amount of problems with him today. So he looked at him and he decided, sure, he's, he looks okay. Patches looks like he's all right. We didn't did the chain. <laughs> he had to go two miles to find the hog the next time. <laughs> Some of you can identify with one of the players in that. Uh, <laughs> I've said I was the first hog on, but a little later on, I crossed the magic line. <laughs> it turned out it wasn't hogs at all. Wasn't hogs at all. Wasn't hogs or badgers. He just caught one cattle truck, and that's all there was to patches. A lot of people with our disease catch the cattle truck. We don't know we have it. We think it's our nature. We think it's just the way we are. We can't see the problem that exists in our lives, and I couldn't. Uh, I was raised on a farm out there in West Texas, and my father didn't drink after he got married. Uh, my mother never did drink. Uh, there wasn't anybody in that community that drank much that we knew about. Uh, it was virtually impossible for me to become an alcoholic from where I started. But I made it. I made it. I, uh, I, and World War II came along. I was 10 years old. And all the guys, all the men went off to war. And 10-year-old boys began to drive tractors and do men's work. That's what I did. Had a lot of responsibility thrust on me which I took pretty well and, uh, and handled pretty well, except from time to time I'd get through with the responsibility and I found what the cure for the load you had with responsibility was a thing called irresponsibility. You wanted to drive a car real fast. You wanted to drink beer and run out from under the cans. You wanted to, you know, shoot insulators off telephone posts, do all those cute things that we did as country kids. And then when I finally found beer and, and alcohol, it just fit like a glove. I was in college at that point in time, and uh, God, I, I, I don't know about you guys, I just love to drink. I just, I, I could get positively excited about getting drunk a week from tonight. <laughs> We're going to buy some booze. We were going to buy pooler money and put some gas in somebody's car. And there ain't no telling where in the hell we'll be the next morning. And there wasn't. Our first question usually was, where are we? <laughs> Followed closely by, what did we do? And nobody knew for sure. We had to kind of piece it together, you know. 
And I was always the guy, though, from the very beginning who said, let's do it again. Let's do it again by God. And I, I was never going to give that up. I liked to drink. I liked what it did for me. I liked the people who did it. I liked the places we went. I liked the places they drank. I liked the whole, I didn't even mind the damned hangovers. They were just a price I had to pay. And the trouble I got into, oh, you know, I got into a fair amount of trouble right away. I had to convince the dean of the college that I was going to that while I wasn't on the band and had passed out on the band bus at a football game, the reason for that was I had become very sick while wandering around the parking lot looking for my car and finally found a place of refuge in the bus and lay down and just went to sleep. And nice man that he was, he let me, he bought into that crap, you know. Uh, and I went right on from there. I uh, went to the Navy, drank some in the Navy, didn't get in any trouble. Drank when I was sure you, and they wouldn't let us drink on the ship. Uh, went to law school, got married, went to law school, and uh, had a kid, didn't have enough money to drink there, and I couldn't pass those damn tests if I was drunk, so I, I drank between semesters. And then I got out and I got a job, a good job, in a law firm in Dallas, and that was where it really began to take over. I just, I just liked to drink. I drank every day. Uh, I could afford to drink a little bit. And it began to escalate on me. And I, I had some things that drove me. I, was, uh, I had some ideas. You talk about our old ideas, how we have to give up some of them. I, uh, I had to compete. I don't care what you were doing. If you were throwing washers at a crack, I had to get a washer and get out and, and with you and start throwing that washer, you know. And I, I as a lawyer, I started out in doing business litigation. Some of you, some guys here do that. And uh, I couldn't do that because how in the hell are you going to win a deed? You can't win a deed. You just a damn piece of paper or whatever, you know. So I got into trying lawsuits. And it felt like a glove, except I don't like to lose. I really don't like to lose. And that losing, fear of losing, I didn't know it was. I thought I liked to win. But I can tell you after 40 years in the pit trying lawsuits, I can recall very few cases I ever won. I can recall all of those that I lost. And I can tell you the guy's name on the other side, the lawyer, had the judge's name was, the, prob the plaintiff's name. I know the goddamn case, and I know why I lost that some bit, some way. I just know that. But that, that was my drive, and it, that drove me. And I, I always knew I was, you'd win them, and you'd win them, and you'd win them, and you'd think, well, I'm, sooner or later you're going to lose. Sooner or later you're going to lose. This may be the one you're going to lose. The client will fire you. He'll never hire you again. And that pressure that I put on myself internally built up. I had other pressures. I wanted to be a man. A man. I had hair on my legs, a little on my chest. I needed to be a man by God. I was watching my dad one time, a little old boy, and dad was working on a rusty bolt on a plow. And he gave up trying to, to take it off of the wrench, and he got a chisel and a hammer, and he was beating that bolt with that hammer and chisel. And he hit it a little crooked, and the chisel flew out of his hand and hit his knuckle. 
and uh, he bled pretty good for that, and he stood up and he cussed pretty good, and it was okay to cuss if you're a man, I knew that, and uh, <laughs> he started back to work again, and I said, Daddy, that hurt? And he looked me just dead in the eye, and he said, hell no. <laughs> a few days later, I was out playing with a hammer and chisel, practicing being a man. I hit my hand with a hammer. You know what? Hurts like a devil. It really does. I cried. And I was afraid to hit the hammer, get to hit the chisel anymore with the hammer. I flunked being a man on three counts right there in that one time. So I always had that feeling that I didn't quite, wasn't quite what I wanted to be. But I had to act like that's what I was. So I went on with my life living that kind of facade trying to be something, trying to be what I thought you wanted me to be. I was one guy if I was talking to the Baptist preacher, I was another guy if I was talking to the bootlegger. But I always wanted to be what you wanted me to be. I had all of that stuff rolled up inside me and I poured booze on it to give me a little relief, to make things a little better, to chemically alter the reality I thought I was living in. And I wasn't gonna give that up. Uh, my drinking escalated over, over, over years. I, I got in a lot of trouble with my wife. I was not coming home. And uh, so I'm, that old responsibility since kicked in again, and I, I just quit going out with the boys. Just started staying home. Just brought my disease right in the house and shared it with the whole family. And uh, I sat there in my green chair and drank whiskey and the kids came up to me, you know, they, they got the brunt of it. They'd come up to me, and when I walked in the house that night, I was just, you know, happy and had a pretty good day. And I'd, they'd say, I'd ask them how their schoolwork was or did their ball team win a game or whatever it was, you know. And they'd tell me about it, and I'd go sit down in my green chair and begin to have a few drinks. And the thoughts and the memories and all those things would come back to me. And they'd come up to me and start to tell me something else. And I'd snap at them and say, what, why, do you, why do you think I'd be interested in that kind of crap? Just get the hell out of here and leave me alone. Jekyll, Jekyll and Hyde, I think they call that. I was not an easy person to live with. It was not easy to live with. My wife was a, we've been married 52 years now. She's a strong woman, I'll tell you that. We, uh, she began to, she had sort of an ab reaction to alcohol. I mean, she, she was hypersensitive about alcohol. She, uh, <laughs> it was, it was kind of uncomfortable living with her there, you know. Uh, <laughs> it was bad enough that I finally sent her to a psychiatrist to, uh, <laughs> and sadly she was sick enough to go, so. Uh, she went and they talked and he told her that she was a little too strict about drinking and, and she did spend a little too much money, which was the other thing we talked a lot about. And uh, then he said, well, why don't you send Jerry in and let me talk with him? And so I went to see the shrink and uh, we talked about football and uh, <laughs> any legal problems he might have. We didn't talk about me. I was not gonna talk about me and, uh, and I left. And she'd keep going back. And finally, she wrote a letter 
she wrote a letter to the Texas Commission on Alcoholism and asked them if they had anything that would help her determine whether her husband had a problem or not. <laughs> and they sent her a damn test. Now, I'm good at taking tests. I, I, I did all right in law school. I, I know how to take a damn test. And I realized when I looked over that test, I re you read all the questions first. That way you can tell where they're trying to go. This test was obviously written by somebody that was a prohibitionist. He didn't want, <laughs> he didn't want nobody to drink. So what you had to do, I drank. So what I had to do was just show that I was moderately in trouble. And they ask questions, dumb questions. Do you drink alone? Well, hell yes, nobody will drink with me. I'm, uh... <laughs> what, what, you know, what's, what's with this? And, and other things like that, inane type of questions. And, and I took the test and I come out a heavy drinker, which was okay with me. I always told, I told the guys in the jail the other night when we were there, I had, I had the image that I wanted to be a lover and a fighter and a wild horse rider and a right smart of a windmill hand to. And uh, that's what I wanted to be, and I didn't mind drinking a little on the side. It was just fine. Well, that didn't satisfy her very long. She, uh, then she did something that was just, to this day, I, I marvel at it. She went to Al-Anon without asking me. <laughs> she didn't discuss that problem with me. She didn't do anything. She just went to Al-Anon. And I, she didn't even tell me she was going. That was the sad thing. She'd been going quite a while when I found out. And I'll tell you, if they get them for a little while, they'll damn sure keep them. That's what happened to my mind. They brainwash them real quick. Uh, and they have them do funny things. They, they give them sponsors. Those sponsors are deadly creatures, I'll tell you. My wife's sponsor was just, I tell the story about, I was sitting at home alone with my dog, having a few drinks, and I got to thinking, you know, the only, the only entity in this house that loves me is this dog. God, this is not fair. And my wife came in from one of those meetings. And I said, this, you know what? This dog here, this dog here is the only thing in this house that loves me. And she said, just a minute, I'm going to call my sponsor. <laughs> and she did. And she came back in a few minutes and she said, my sponsor says you're right. She says, we're going to fix that because we're going to buy you another dog. <laughs> that's, what, that's what you can expect from those people. They saved my life, is what they did. She kept going, and I kept trying to get her, out of, get her out of that thing. I threatened her. I did everything I could to run that woman off from going to Alan Means. I explained to her as carefully as a man can that she was going to ruin our lives. I gazed deeply into her eyes, sat her down, and said, Now listen to me. Have you noticed that I'm the only one who brings any money to this house? She said, Yeah, she knew that. I said, Do you realize that if those lawyers in my firm downtown find out that I've been, my wife's been going to a public meeting 
for, they, for her alcoholic husband that they'll kick me out of that law firm that day. And I won't take any clients with me. And we'll be standing on the streets of Dallas in the middle of the damn winter with our kids naked with no money. <laughs> I made a pretty good pitch there. And she said, Jerry, I think I need to go. And I said, Billy, Billy, you must not go. She said, Jerry, I think I'm going to go. I said, Billy, I said something loving like, you know, Billy, if you go to another one of those damn meetings, I'll kill you just sure as hell. No. <laughs> she went and I didn't kill her. But I kept trying to run her out of Al-Anon. And one night I came home and I'd plan, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I plan fights. I plan to have a fight. I, I know we're going to have a fight when I get home. And I kind of figure out some questions I can ask her to get some information I'm going to need to win the fight. <laughs> and I sneak up on her. And I went in this house this evening and I gave her a little kiss on the cheek and told her the dinner smelled good on the stove and said hello to the dog and the kids. And I turned and I said, Billy, you think I'm an alcoholic? And she said, I don't know whether you are or not. I said, well, that's damn funny. You've called me an alcoholic for years. And she said, yes, but I was wrong. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what your father or your mother thinks, your partners think, your friends think, your doctor thinks. It matters only what you think. If you don't think you have a problem with alcohol, You'll never do anything about it. Well, I'll tell you what, this conversation was not going the way I had planned it. <laughs> and I was caught off guard, but I had a question. She seemed to know something, so I said, well, how would I find out if I was an alcoholic? The jaws of the Al-Anon trap closed just like that. <laughs> she said, well, Jerry, one way you could determine it is if you quit drinking entirely. But I don't think you want to do that. I said, no, you're right. I don't want to do that. She said, the other way you can try it, there's a book called the Primer on Alcoholism that was written by a woman who was the first member of, woman member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she, uh, she says in that book, if you have a question about whether you're an alcoholic or not, you should drink two drinks a day, every day for six months. No more, no less, but every day. And if you can do that and never exceed that amount, at the end of six months, you'll know you're not an alcoholic. I said, wait a minute, let me, let me get this on my mind. Uh, <laughs> you've been trying to get me to quit drinking for years. Do I understand you want me to commit to drink six more months? And she said, yes. And I realized I was dealing with a seriously deranged woman. It was, uh, <laughs> this conversation was going nowhere, and I got the hell away from it. I just said, it's the dumbest test I ever heard, and walked off. 
sat in my chair and, and, and drank for about two more weeks and thought about that damn test. And uh, I, uh, I was really worried. I just made senior partner in my law firm. I did not want them to know my wife was going to meetings in which they discussed whether or not I was an alcoholic. I didn't want them to have even a hint that I'm, I, well, they'd, they'd asked me a couple of questions about the way I drank, and they, I didn't need, need any more fuel for that fire. I could tell you that for damn sure. I, I was sure they are going to fire me. And I realized that sudden, somebody was going to have to make a sacrifice for this damn family. And I guess that's going to have to be me. I guess I'm just going to have to take the damn test. I didn't tell anybody I'm going to take the damn test. I'm not that stupid. I, uh, I, she watched me drink all the time. She knew exactly what I drank. So I, what I planned to do was I just going to start taking the test. And she had noticed in a couple of months that I was doing that and doing just fine. And she'd get the hell out of that Alanon thing because she had to realize how the dangerous thing she was doing for the family. And uh, then she quit, and I could go back to my normal life. <clears throat> so I started to test. Well, I, I had to change the test a little. Uh, <laughs> two drinks really didn't do anything for me. But I had a pretty big glass, and I figured three drinks. I'd have two martinis, which consisted of beef eaters, gin, Maybe a little bit of vermouth, not necessarily. Sometimes there was ice and sometimes there wasn't, but I had two big beef eater gins. And then I would eat dinner. And then after dinner, I would have a brandy in that same kind of glass with a little splash of soda for my digestion, which is <laughs> what gentlemen did the world over after dinner. And she uh, would not be able to say anything to me about drinking because this was reasonable. Unless she was a completely a prohibitionist, this was a reasonable way to drink. I would not cause anybody any problems if I did this. So I started trying. And my recovery commenced on the first day I tried that. I didn't know it started, I was recovering. I didn't know I was finding out I had a problem. But I, what I found out was I'd have about two of those drinks. And toward the end of the second one, I'd think, mm, mm. That's about all the martinis today. Mm. And then it would happen. It would happen. A thought would come in my head. And it would say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you over 21? Are you a man? Are you going to let a bunch of little old ladies in tennis shoes tell you how to drink whiskey? And the answer was, hell no. And I drank the bottle. Or some days I'd come in and I'd walk up to the bar and I'd think, that's been a bad day today. Bad day today. Ain't going to be no damn test today. No test today, by God. <laughs> Once in a while, I could forget the damn thing, kind of on purpose, 
kind of push it out of my mind. And, but my, that sponsor of my wife's, she had her doing things that were just unconscionable. She had her, when she woke up in the morning, the instant she awakened, the moment, the second she awakened, she was supposed to say out loud and with some feeling, this is the day the Lord has made, I shall rejoice and be glad in it. Now, when you've had a quart of whiskey the night before, <laughs> and you hear that, your head's throbbing, that foom, foom. Your gun tongue's got that, you know, thick layer of something on there you could shave, you know. One of your eyes has been propped open for several hours, and you have what I call dry sockets. And uh, you're pretty sure you're not going to rejoice a hell of a lot that day, I'll just tell you that. And you think, why did I do that? Why did I drink that? I was going to just drink three drinks. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Good question. A guy that's had the kind of drive that I had, a guy that's had the kind of discipline that I had, that couldn't decide to drink three drinks a day and not drink anymore, that's a damn good question. And I, uh, I tried, I gave that test a pretty fair shot. I, I tried it about a year and a half, and uh, I never passed it once. <laughs> On December 31, 1972, I had only one objective for the day. I needed to be sober so that we could go out to dinner with a couple of friends and have dinner on New Year's Eve and come back in the house. We're coming back to my house. I know why we're coming to my house because I've already got out one time that, that month and, and it was hard to get me back in. And... Uh, we're going to get me back in the house, and that they feel, I guess they take the car keys. I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to keep me in that house and let me bring in the new year. That's, that's what I think they're figuring. And uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's important that I do it. I need to do this. And I uh, started that morning. I had decided I'd had just a little drink, just to kind of loosen up, up, up the day and watch the football games. Just, you know, just a little sip. And... Uh, I was pacing myself throughout the day, watching it very carefully, and uh, I was in my green chair, and I woke up, and I looked out the window, and it was dark, pitch dark outside, and I looked over, and my wife was sitting in her chair, and she was in her robe reading the books, a little book. They read lots of little books, I've noticed. <laughs> they leave them around for you, but I never read them. Uh, and I said, Billy, shouldn't we be getting dressed to go to dinner? And she said, oh, Jerry, don't you know what time it is? It was a little after 10. I'd passed out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I had no excuse. I wasn't mad at anybody. I wasn't celebrating anything. I had no reason in the world to drink the way I drank that day. I was sick of myself. I knew that she, we, we, that she'd had to call those friends and tell them we couldn't go to dinner. And not only that, she had to call them and say, you know, you can't come over here either. 
Probably she'd being Al-Anon like she was, she probably told him because Jerry's passed out in his chair. I don't know what she told him. But I was ashamed of myself. I was sick of myself. I was sick of what I was and what I wasn't. And I got up and I went to the bar and I mixed a big drink. I wanted oblivion and it knocked me out. God willing, that's the last drink I'll ever take. I got up on January the 1st, 1973, to the sorriest looking day I ever saw in my life. I sat on the edge of the bed that morning, hung over and sick, and Billy had already got up and gone to kitchen or somewhere. And uh, I sat there on the edge of the bed, and I thought, what, you know, what am I going to do this year? It's a new year. What, what are you going to do this year that's going to make your life any better? What are your options? What options do you have to deal with this problem? And I couldn't think of any option except one, and that was to stop drinking. So I decided I would stop drinking. First time I'd ever had that thought in the many, many years that I had drank. And I uh, showered, and I went in the kitchen, and I told Billy that I was sorry that I'd messed up the night before. She was not impressed with my little apology. <laughs> She didn't hardly respond to me at all. And I said, I have decided I'm going to try to quit drinking. And that got her attention. She wheeled around and she said, just a second. She ran over to the bookcase and she happened to have a copy of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the 24-hour day book. And she came running over to me with those books and she said, you may find these helpful. Would you like for me to call somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous? And I threw the books against the wall and said, hell no. Hell no. You keep them damned AAs and everybody else the hell away from me. Keep the kids away from me because this ain't going to be easy. This ain't going to be pretty. <laughs> but by God, if anybody's going to do it, I'm going to do it. That's the way it's going to be. And she said something loving and out on line like, you got it, and walked off. <laughs> and I had it. I didn't know I had had it, but I had had it. And I don't know how it was with you when you quit drinking. You, if you're doing something bad, when you stop it, shouldn't it get better? Didn't happen to me. I began to shake inside and out. I got quick. <laughs> I couldn't sleep. I walked. I, couldn't, I was not in the right place. I was never in the right place. If I was laying down, I ought to be standing up. If I'm standing up, I ought to be outside. If I'm outside, I ought to be inside sitting down. I'm just moving and grooving around, and I'm shaking, and I'm looking. And we go to the neighbors to watch the football game, and I don't see much of it, but I've looked all over the screen. <laughs> and it doesn't get any better right away, I'll tell you that for damn sure. At the end of the, end of the second day... <coughs> I caught her out of the kitchen, and I knew she'd left them damn books around there somewhere. So I decided I'd better go read them books and see what those AA and AA field people do, whatever the hell they are. So I went in there, and I didn't have time. I'm sorry I didn't have time to read the big book. Just didn't have time to do that. But I picked up that little 24-hour-a-day book, and I opened it with that keen alcoholic mind. I noticed there was a date on the top of every page. <laughs> I turned to January 2nd, and it said... Alcohol's ruined your life. And I said, yes, sir, yes. 
And it went on to tell me that this year we're going to give our drinking problem to God. I can't tell you how disappointed I was in that. <laughs> how are you going to give something to somebody you can't find? I've been looking for God ever since I was a little old bitty kid. I wanted to find God. I wanted to see somebody walk on a little water or burning bush. I wanted to some, something to big to happen to convince me that this was not some kind of con. I was always a skeptic, always cynical. I was born that way. And it never happened. I demanded God show himself to me, and he just didn't do it. And there I was in deep, deep trouble. And the book telling me i got to give my drinking problem to God is the only way I'm going to get out of this deal. And I don't know why I did what I did. But I threw that book out in the middle of the table and sat there in that chair and said, God, if you're there, I'm going to give you this drinking problem. And if you take it, I may do some more business with you. <laughs> Maybe the best prayer I ever said. It was dead honest. It was, I expressed myself exactly the way I felt. And I needed a drink just as bad after I said it as I did before. But I got through that day. And the next morning I got up and I knew something that I hadn't ever known before. I knew that my self-sufficiency wasn't going to handle this deal. I was going to have to have some help if I was going to equip this thing. It had me. If I didn't get some help that day, I was going to, I was going to drink before the night was over. I needed some help with skin on it. I didn't need some spirit somewhere. I wanted somebody, some people. And the only people I knew was Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife, had, you know, she, I knew about her. I couldn't call her bunch, though. She'd been there talking so damn long about me being a drunk that I, I couldn't. She'd poisoned the well there. I couldn't go there. <laughs> so I called the central office, found it in the phone book. It sounded important, central office. And I got the most unsympathetic woman on the telephone I've ever heard in my life. I said, I'm having a little problem stopping drinking. And she said, how long have you been sober? Well, this is my second day. You need to go to an AA meeting. I said, okay, 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 fine. But I, I, I gotta, you got to understand that uh, I, I'm a pretty big-time lawyer, and I can't just go anywhere. I've I got to go to a secret place. She said, where do you want to go? What kind of group do you want to go to? And I said, well, I'd like to go to a group that's, you know, near a country club uh, that has college graduates. And she said, we ain't got none of them. <laughs> and she said, and I said, I can't, I can't go to a meeting every night. I can't. I'm, I'm a busy lawyer, too. And she said, well, what are you going to do at night? What have you been doing at night? I said, well, I've been drinking at night. And she said, well, you're going to stop that so you're going to have some free time, ain't you? <laughs> so I said, give me a little quiet group. I want a quiet little group. It's got to be secret. So she gave me the town and country group. Sounded kind of woodsy, you know. Uh, 
I figured everybody drove station wagons that went there, you know, and I'd fit right in. And uh, I went to that meeting. And hell, like, that was a revelation in itself. Their baby, their baby had a year and a half sobriety. The next guy had five, and then they got serious. They had 10, 15, 20 years. And I didn't even believe that you could, hell, I couldn't stay sober a week. How are you going to stay a year and a half or 20 years feeling the way I do? You can't do that. So I did, they didn't have a lot of credibility with me. And we met once a week, whether they needed it or not. And uh, <laughs> she had told me I needed to go every day. I mean, I, you know, I didn't believe much about her. And about the third meeting that I went to there, an old boy came in from uh, Hartview, North Dakota, treatment center. He had literature sticking out of every pocket. Ah, <laughs> uh, damn, he was hot. He was hot. He'd been there four months. It was a 28-day program, and it had taken him four months to get out of there. Something about refusing to do a fourth step. I don't know what the hell it was, but I didn't know what that fourth step was anyway. I thought it was sort of like the Texas two-step or something. I didn't really know. Anyway, he knew more about alcohol than men, anybody I'd ever heard in my life. I just soaked up everything he said. And, and most importantly, he looked like an alcoholic. He was still quick. And I was quick, you know, we'd sat there in that meeting and we'd look at each other and we knew we were dealing with the real, real McCoy. <laughs> I followed him right out of that meeting and I got outside, his name was David, and I said, David, David. He said, yeah. I said, what do you think about this? Uh, <laughs> what do you think about this AA thing? And he said, oh, you mean this one here? <laughs> He said, this is not what we need. This is not what we need. These are, for, these are people that have been sober for years, and they're just kind of in a maintenance program or something. He said, we need to get in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to have to go to a meeting every night. We're going to have to get sponsors. We're going to have to do the steps. We're going to have to make coffee, whatever the hell good that did, but we're going to have to make coffee. And we're going to have to change the way we think, or we're going to die drunk. And the miracle happened for me. I said, where are we going to go? He said, well, I heard about a little group that's just started way out in North Dallas on Alpha Road. I knew where Alpha Road was. It was way out of my territory. It had potential. Uh, he said, will you go with me tomorrow night? And I said, I'll think about it. So we parted. And I, I knew where it was. He gave me the address. And the next day, I got in my car, and I went out there, and I cased it just like I was going to rob the damn place. <laughs> First time I went by at about 55 miles an hour and just glanced at it. <laughs> the second time I went by it, I pulled in. Didn't see anything the first time. I checked. It was in the second story. And there were windows facing the street. And I checked for surveillance cameras. Spies, all that kind of stuff. It was passed all the tests. Nobody was there. It didn't seem like. So I went in. It was over a 7-Eleven store. And I went in, bought me a Slurpee or whatever you get in a 7-Eleven store. Came back out. I checked it again to see what, what the activity was upstairs. It was quiet still. And then I noticed there was a driveway around the side of the building. So I backed my car out and drove around the back. And there it was. There were six parking places in the alley. 
I could climb the fire escape and go in the back door and go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the way you got me. I walked in, I didn't like you. I didn't want to drink coffee. I got hugged when I did not want to be hugged. I thought you were corny as hell. Everybody, some grown man stand up and say, my name's Jerry, and everybody said, hi, Jerry. And <laughs> God. I expect they to come around and give me the grip in a few minutes, but they didn't give me the grip. They, uh, they told the damnedest things about themselves. It was just pathetic. I mean, terrible, terrible things. Convulsions, arrests, imprisonment, getting sick running off from their wives, all kinds of wild and crazy things. And every time they told one of these things, people just laughed like hell and, <laughs> and clapped. They had, the most, they had the most inappropriate sense of humor I'd ever run across in my life. Now, I told you I was competitive. And I hadn't been there a little bit, and I got to thinking, well, you know, I did a couple things that were kind of cute. I might tell them, and I did. And they said, looky here, Jerry's beginning to open up. He's beginning to be himself. And they told me, being yourself and living inside your own values is the greatest freedom you will ever experience. And they invited me into the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a sponsor. I began to do the things they told me to do. I didn't believe. I did not believe. I had a, some kind of an idea that there must be some power greater than myself, a creative force or something for this universe. I couldn't get my head around anything else. But I had no concept of anything that would that power would come to me or, or a way I could in, engage that power. It just didn't make sense to me. I'd been to all kinds of churches. I'd talked to all ministers. I'd read books. I'd done everything I could trying to connect with what I ho thought that power might be, and I had had no luck. And I'd had no luck because it was all on my terms. I had made all the, all the terms. And I realized that I was going to have to find a God as I understood him. I was going to have to find something to fill that hole in the program. And what it was for me, I got to watching people come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I saw people come in there that could not get sober. You could look at them and just tell, that ain't going to make it. But by gosh, they did. They sobered up, they cleaned up, they became responsible people. Something was working in Alcoholics Anonymous. In meetings like this, once in a while, you could sort of feel something. You could sort of feel a power that was present, that had united all these people and drawn them all together in one, one, one mind. They thought different things. They had different ideas about this God, but they, they were all committed to the principle. And I decided that God, for me, was have it, whatever, it work, whatever works in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was supposed to be willing to add to that as I went along. I had a, I had a wonderful experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I got in the middle of it, and I got in a group that grew from 50 to 600 in about 400 years. We 12-stepped we we anything that walked. My God, we were after them. We hunted drunks like you can't believe, and we, 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 we worked on them. We made up meetings, and we, did, we really got after it. And I was right in the middle of that thing. Uh, I made close friends with some people. There's an old gal there that when I first came in, I could not stand. She was, she was talked about darling, and she used word. Ah, she was just phony as she could be, I thought. And she grabbed me and hugged me, and I didn't want to hug her. I didn't want to be around her. One night she came up to me, and she said, will you buy me some ice cream after dinner? And I said, I mean, after uh, the meeting. And I said, uh, uh, well, I, she said, I really need to talk to you. I thought, well, she's going to lean on me for some legal advice. That's what she's going to do. She's her ass is in trouble somewhere, and I'm, she's going to try to get some free legal advice out of me. She said, please, let's go, go, go with me to get some ice cream. So I said, okay, okay, we'll go. I haven't got long, but we'll go. She took me to this ice cream place, told me what kind of ice cream to eat, where to sit. And uh, <laughs> then she flopped down, and she looked at me, and she said, some bitch, I've been looking at you. I said, uh-oh. Uh, she said, I think you're going to make it. She said, I had 13 years in this program, and I got drunk. And for four years, I've been out on the streets. I've got about six months now, and I really want to make it. And she said, I'm, I'm tough. I'm hard to get close to, and I need someone to, watch, someone to watch me, someone to tell me when I'm getting off the beam. Here's the way I act when I get off the beam. And I want you to watch me, and when I get off the beam, will you tell me? I said, you bet your ass. I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> she said, good, because I'm going to watch you too. And uh, we added David, the guy that introduced me to that group, uh, to that group, and the three of us worked the steps together. We processed our AA life together. We had a, one of us had a problem. We'd all check with our sponsors. And we'd come back and give the answer that each sponsor would give us, and we'd kind of sh shake out which we thought was the best answer and, and go that way. And <laughs> they really sponsored me more than my sponsor did. And we wound up, you know, it was a new group at that time, and my gosh, at the end of the second year, I was sponsoring 25 people. And they, and they were just growing. It was, somebody had to sponsor them. There was nobody else. The three of us just caught damn near every one of them that came in. It was more than we could possibly handle. And you know what happened sooner or later, it got too many and, I, and they began to, to fold away. And, but I, I learned a lot in those, those few years. My life changed. A man at the jail asked me last night uh, if I had had a spiritual experience. What would we, when would you have a spiritual experience? And I, uh, I have had two or three of those that, that were really uh, landmark moments in my life. One of them happened when I was maybe three or four months sober and my wife and I were trying to put together a, a marriage. She uh, and I had decided before I got sober, just before I got sober, that if we didn't get any better in six months, we'd get a divorce. Neither of us really wanted a divorce, but life was intolerable where we were living. And so we heard about this Baptist preacher who was giving a seminar out in the Way out in East Texas, and we went out there. And uh, there were only about 20 people there, 18 or 20 people there, about eight or 10 uh, couples, I guess. 
And uh, after dinner that night, uh, the preacher stood in the middle of the room, and there was a small, it was a small room, and we were all sitting on the floor. There weren't any chairs. And uh, he said, well, let's get this thing started. Let's go around the circle and t- let everybody tell you what God is doing in your life. Well, I, that's a testimonial. Baptists give testimonials. I was a Methodist. Methodists don't give testimonials. <laughs> I ain't going to do this. And I would have got up and left, except I know this woman that's sitting beside me, my wife, she ain't going to leave. And I'm going to have to get up and kind of crawl across the floor to get out of that room. And I, so I just decided, well, somebody will have sense enough to say, no, thank you. I pass or something. Well, they started around the room, and they had the, they were all civilians, not, not a member in the program. They were all civilians, and they had the wimpiest little problems that I had ever heard in my life. <laughs> One of them couldn't drive the expressway without God. My God, I'd driven the expressway drunker and Cooter Brown a million times. <laughs> Another couldn't raise their family. Hell, I'd done a pretty good job with it. Couldn't keep a job. I'd kept a job all my life. I wasn't it. And I got to thinking, you know, these, these people don't get it. They don't get it. I, I've been sober three months now. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a real alcoholic. I've been kept sober by something. I guess it's God. I guess it's God that's kept me sober. If I told these civilians that about being an alcoholic and being sober for three months because God helped me, I'd blow the socks off these folks. That's what I'd do. <laughs> They'd want to counsel with me right after this meeting, I can tell you that. <laughs> I looked around that room real careful and I thought, I've never seen any of these people before and I'll probably never see anybody again. By gosh, I'll just tell them. So now I didn't hear anything for a while because I'm, re- I'm rehearsing my speech in my mind, you know, I don't hear anything. But it came, there was a couple next to me, the girl was sitting next to me and the old boy was sitting next to her. And he got up and he started trying to talk and it was pathetic. It was pathetic. I, I just got, it still is. He gave the most unmanly presentation that I'd ever seen in my life. He bawled, he blew his nose, he, he looked like he was a real man, you know. He had 6'4 and wearing rough clothes and he had calluses on the back of his hands where they drugged the ground. You know, you've seen that kind of guy. <laughs> but he was a wimp that night, I'll tell you. And I wanted him to sit down, sit down. Finally, he sat down. I never did get an idea what the hell he was talking about. And she got up. She got up and she, uh, she was slender and she was pretty. And she, was, uh, she had gray eyes like my mother. And she uh, looked over the group and she said, I couldn't do it by myself. I just couldn't do it. God sustains me every day. And the most wonderful thing about God is that he's there for all of us equally. We all have the opportunity to form a relationship with him. My children are just ages two and three, and I won't be there to help them form that relationship, but they will have an opportunity to form a relationship with that power. We all do. 
And she went on to talk for a little bit, and I suddenly realized that I'm listening to a 32-year-old woman who's talking about how her husband can't possibly think about how he's going to live his life without her or raise those kids and how broken up he is. She's going to die in just a few months. She has cancer, an incurable disease. I have an incurable disease. Mine is called alcoholism. I've got a way to arrest mine. All I've got to do is do what you folks told me to do. And I had a big thought. A big thought. I'd been feeling so sorry for myself. Self-pity was oozing out of me for having to quit drinking and go to meetings and all that kind of stuff. And this thought came in and pushed all that stuff out of my head. Said, ain't you got it tough, cowboy? Ain't you got it tough? If that little girl had your solution, she would say, take off both my legs. I'll give them both to you. Just give me that solution. I didn't make a speech that night. I don't know how I avoided making a speech. I don't know how I got out of that room. The next thing I really remember was I was out in the woods, tears stringing down my cheeks. And I made that old boy look like he's as tough as a boot. I was just bubbling and bawling. And I wasn't crying because I was feeling sorry for myself. I was crying because I had been given a way out. Gratitude. Deep, penetrating gratitude. I went from self-pity to that grateful shift in a moment. And that was, my, was one of my spiritual awakenings and spiritual experiences. I've never, ever... Felt sorry for myself for being an alcoholic since that day. And I don't feel very sorry for you either. <laughs> we got a hell of a deal here. We really have. My life continued on. I got good relationships with my kids. My wife and I put that marriage back together. And as I told you, we've been married 52 years now. 53, I think it is. I don't... don't Cut that off the tape. <laughs> we, uh, we've got a good life. We've had a really good life. We've been wonderfully treated in Alcoholics Anonymous. We've been all over the world to AA meetings, and we've, we've just had a really a ball. My mom was my great buddy. She was on that, there were three of us on that farm when I was a kid and World War II came along and she was a skinny little Irishman and she uh, was a hard worker and she helped me every way she could when I was that kid trying to do a man's work and we were, both of us were trying to fight off my dad who was a tough old bird and, and uh, she and I always were just big buddies. She got cancer before I got sober. They performed one operation, then they had a second one, and they, she called me and said, would I come up for that operation? And I said, well, yeah, I'd be glad to. And I didn't take a bottle with me because she didn't drink, and she didn't like me to drink, and so I just went up there to help her, and I wasn't going to drink. And they took her into surgery and operated, and the old family doctor was observing the surgery, and he came out in just a few minutes and walked over to my dad and I, and he said, boys, it ain't no good. I said, that cancer is everywhere. She'll be dead in a year. And it was like somebody flipped a switch on me. 
I just like a zombie. I turned around, walked out of that hospital, got in a car, went to the liquor store and bought a bottle. And for the next few days, I stayed around there drunk. I drank vodka and coffee and whatever I could trying to cover it up. But my mother went through, she, she got out of recovery and they, they sewed her up and she, uh, she knew it. Dad knew it. Everybody knew it and they sent me home. I wasn't any good to anybody. Well, they gave her chemotherapy and it worked real good. And she lived many more years. And when I was five years sober, she called me again and she said, they found another lump in my stomach and they're going to operate again and I'd like for you to come up. I said, I'll be there. And I went up there and we sat and talked and it was easy. All the problems we'd ever had were laid to rest with her and my dad and you know, the conversation was smooth and easy, and she said, uh, Jerry, I want you to uh, get the family in here. I want to talk to them. So I rounded them up and brought them in there. And she said, uh, folks, she said, uh, I've had this cancer a long time, and I'm a lot weaker than I was when I got it. I don't know whether I'm going to make it this time or not. I'm going to try, but I don't know whether I can make it or not this time. It's going to be very, very hard on me. But it's going to be hard on you, too. It's going to be a long pull for both of us. And while this is going on, she said, lean on Jerry. He'll be your strength. And it was. She lived a couple more weeks, and uh, it was a horrible death. It just was just bad. She never really regained uh, enough consciousness or awareness to converse with us that I could tell and she was in lots of pain and uh, and the last night of her life I prayed that God would take her and I told my dad the same thing and he said I did too and she died that night and my dad blew a big ulcer that night and had to be uh, operated on took most of his stomach out so he couldn't go to the funeral and I had the whole deal and I uh, handled that and a couple of weeks later, I thought, you know, that whole deal went on. There was as stressful a period as I've ever had in my life. And not one second during that period of time did I think about taking a drink. It never crossed my mind. The only difference between the first and the second time was the fact that I had processed my life in such a way that I'd made contact with a power that sustained me. That's what I believe happened. And I believe it will happen for you just as it did for me. It's done it for millions of people. And it was one of the most vital experiences of my life. Because of that, I have a great debt. I owe the world, and have owed the world for 30-some years, the debt of trying to repay what's been given to me. The only way I can do that is try to help other alcoholics. There's no shortage of them. They're all around us. They're, some of them smoke high-octane cigarettes and chew funny pills, and, but lots of them drink whiskey too. And we got the solution. We're the only group that's come down the pike that's really got the solution. A lot of people claim they got it, but I don't see the evidence of it. 
I really don't. Doctors and scientists have thought for many, many years that rolled an appeal to us, some kind of pill. Some kind of pill would fix us. But thousands, millions of people have got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous without appeal. They did it because they got in right relationship with this power. It's here. It's in this room. It's in the meetings that we go to. It's in the steps. It's a gift from a power greater than ourselves. And it's your job and my job to respond to that gift. We didn't deserve it. God knows we didn't deserve it. You had to pick a group of people that did not deserve what we got. You'd find, be real hard for us to find them, you know. Lois Wilson was, uh, Bill Wilson's uh, wife. She was one of the early people, in, a founder in, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, really. She was dying. She was a great gal. She wrote a book, Lois Remembers. If you haven't read it, get it. It's, uh, she remembered more than Bill did for some strange reason. Uh, <laughs> She uh, was dying and uh, the manager of the general service office in New York uh, knew of that. She was up in New York in the East Coast there dying and, and she was in intensive care. And, but you could go, they could let one or two people go in a day to see her and he went, made an appointment, went out to see her. And he went to see her because he wanted to thank her. For, he, knew, he knew she wasn't going to come out of there. And he went to thank her for what she'd done for Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, he talked to her a little while and told her what was going on in the world. And then he said, uh, Lois, I came here today because I wanted to tell you how much, I on behalf of Alcoholics Anonymous, how much we appreciated what you've done for, for our fellowship. And uh, you, you know, you saved our lives. And she had a little pencil and paper. And she wrote on the paper, not me, God and handed it to him. He said, well, okay, you got me, Lois. Of course you're right. Of course it was God. But you were his messenger. And she picked up her pad again and she wrote, and so are you. And so are you. Each of you. And if you, the way you discharge that responsibility is the way you're going to feel good about yourself and the joy and happiness you're going to have in your life. I don't know of anything that's added to my life, anything like Alcoholics Anonymous has. You could say my children, my family, sure, but I wouldn't have had them. I wouldn't have had them if I hadn't had Alcoholics Anonymous. Every good thing that I wound up in my life came from and through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a wonderful way to go. Ain't we got it tough? Thank you. So what did you think about Mr. Jerry J? Uh, to me, he is just an incredible dynamo. I would love to know what you think. Uh, email me at john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. All right, now on to some additional listener feedback. First of all, I want to say this. Lauren wrote in, 
with an answer to a question that we had, both Megan H. and I, during the Megan H. episode. I believe that is episode number 76. Uh, It's called Megan Takes a Holiday from Drugs and Alcohol. But anyway, during the middle of that episode, we started talking about the term Eskimo. And neither uh, Megan, who brought it up, or myself, who had not heard of the term before, knew what Eskimo meant within the rooms of recovery. And Lauren wrote us in, thank you, Lauren. And she says, an Eskimo is the one who brings you in from out of the cold. This is the person in recovery who introduced you to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I never knew that. So uh, I had uh, uh, at least one or two Eskimos, uh, but maybe that's something that uh, you all can start using in your particular groups out there, your Eskimo. Nonetheless, Joan M. also writes in, and Joan M. says, by the way, this is Joan M. writing to John M., and she says, Hi, John. I was on Podbean, which is a podcast player, looking for something along the lines of AA. Luckily, you turned up. Well, thank you, Ms. Joan M. I have listened to three podcasts thus far, and I have gained much from their stories. Your questions add depth to their interviews, and I appreciate that. Such open and honest people we are or aspire to be. I live in Denver and MS. I'm assuming that's Mississippi. I'm sure it is. Grandkids keep us on the move. (laughs) I go to the Trudgers noon meeting in Denver and the Madison slash Ridgeland noon meeting in Mississippi. They are both inspiring meetings with amazing men and women, men and women. I will be six months sober tomorrow. I tried sobriety by myself twice before, but wasn't committed. I'm thinking the third time is a charm. And I'm thinking the third time is a charm for you, Ms. Joan. That's great. I'm grateful to be sober and not hung over every morning, able to sleep through the night and remember dinner and conversations from the night before. I can definitely relate to that. And those are just a few of the things I am grateful for. You know, we should have a... Uh, a song that goes like, these are a few of the things that I'm grateful for. Isn't that like a movie or a song from like a Sound of Music or something? Um, I could completely be wrong. But nonetheless, anyway, she says, I'm on step four now and I just listened to David G. I'm a bit confused about the fear and sex graphs. I'll discuss with my sponsor. That's great. I'm just glad you're interested in it and doing it correctly and that you're going to have a conversation with your sponsor, Joan M. Anyway, she said, I love Maria's thinking and that she was, I love Maria's thinking that she was a good soccer mom, such a cunning disease. Could I be added to the secret Facebook group? Thanks for having Sober Speak. It's a great service and I am deeply grateful Joan M. Well, as you know, Miss Joan M., we added you to that Sober Speak Facebook group, and uh, we're so glad to have you along. Thanks for writing in. Tanya writes in, 
And she says, hi, John, I absolutely love listening to Sober Speak on your podcast. I have learned so much about the 12 steps and am now ready to find a local meeting to attend. I'm nervous, but know in my heart it will be a positive, life-changing journey. I cannot thank you enough for giving me the insight to rid my life of alcohol. Oh, I'm now 45 days <laughs> AF. Uh, for those of you who don't know what AF is, just... Uh, uh, look it up. Nonetheless, she says, I feel fantastic and my life is getting back on track. I would really like to join the Facebook group for additional support. My FB is under this email. I won't read that email out loud, but many happy blessings and warm wishes to you and your family, Tanya G. Well, thank you, Tanya. And I'm glad you could join the Facebook group. And uh, I'm so, so uh, uh, happy that we have been able to play a small part in your sobriety. All right. So the next one is from, I hope I am pronouncing this correctly. Chetina. Chetina is C-H-E-T-A-N-A from Italy. And she's from Italy. I'm so sorry I did that, Chetina. I, I'm, you know, these these really bad fake Italian accents would just drive me crazy if I was you listening to them. But nonetheless, hi, John. I listen to Sober Speak very often. One episode that comes to mind is Ryan L's story. That one really resonated with me. But there are so many more. And here is a bit of my story to, to, uh, to add. My name is Chitana, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I am an American living in Italy. Been here for 26 years. My sobriety date is August 10th, 2017. I have a lot lifelong relationship with drinking. And as we both know, alcoholism is a progressive disease. So true to form, so true to form it progressed. I reached my bottom on August 9th, 2017. And with help from my beloved husband and a few friends, only one thing, uh, w uh, with some help from my beloved ha uh, husband and a few friends, only there was this one thing. There were no AA meetings where I live. I live in a small town in southern Italy. I was doing it on my own and thought I would be okay. My friend, who is a therapist and has worked in recovery facilities, told me I must get a support structure. I was baffled as to how I could do that and since there were no meetings here. Higher power on my side, my friend found some AA meetings online. She gave me information and about three weeks later, I, I gathered up the courage to make the call. I was so nervous. So I called into a group called 164YP. I'm sure the 164 is uh, the pages in the big book. YP, I don't know what it is. Maybe yellow pages. Just kidding. I don't know what it is. Anyway, I remember the man that I spoke to first and how kind and welcoming he was. I had never been to an AA meeting before, so it was so very new to me. I ended up going to that one, then another one, then I got very comfortable and saw the benefits AA had to offer me in the journey I was taking. My first year of sobriety, I went to at least one, most days, two meetings a day online. I didn't do 90 and 90. I did 180 in 90 days. I was hooked. 
they had me at, hi, my name is blank, and I'm an alcoholic. I have become sober and remain sober 24 hours at a time in online meetings. These are regular AA meetings only on Skype. Hmm. These meetings have saved my life. I have a sponsor and I am working the steps with her. I have met an amazing group of sober friends who stay in touch with me and we are very close. I do service in some of the meetings and enjoy giving it away what has been so freely given to me. As they say, you have to give it away to keep it. I have started sobriety later in life. I wonder how my life would have been if I found freedom from alcohol earlier in my life, but my HP has had a plan for me that is being revealed daily. Again, John, thank you and all the folks that so at Sober Speak that put together this wonderful podcast. It's like having a meeting with me all the time. In sobriety, we walk together. Chitana, grateful recovering alcoholic in Italy. I am so, so thankful for you that you wrote in Chitana. And uh, uh, once again, I hope I'm not butchering your name, but God bless you and congratulations on the sobriety you have put together. Heather writes in, Heather says, John, I have posted my first comment on the Facebook group page. I've only found your podcast a couple of days ago, but I have already resonated with Megan and Marie, especially when Marie says she thought alcohol made her a better mum. My boys were eight and five when I found AA. They're now 30 and 27 by the grace of God and thanks to you and working the program. I can be the sort of mother I always wanted to be, yours in fellowship, Heather H. Now, she spelled program with an E on the end, and she had the word mum in there. So I am quite sure you are from the United Kingdom, Heather, and uh, I'm so glad you wrote in. All right, Jill writes in, and she says, John, I... I'm a 41-year-old nurse living near Raleigh, North Carolina. I once worked in a fancy, rich and famous patients, detox and rehab facility in Connecticut. My sobriety date is 2-7-19, so I'm a newbie. I, I thought I knew all the stuff because of my clinical knowledge and training. I didn't know squat in big letters about AA or my own condition, even though I thought I'd been in treatment for depression for years. The drinking got worse after gastric bypass surgery, which rendered me blacked out after three beers on too many evenings. Oh my goodness. I realized alcohol was completely contran contradicted with psych meds and most of my in my post-surgical condition and stopped and then I found an extreme amount of hatred for the world around me my medication levels were all over the place because alcohol was interfering with my uh, overly neurostimulated system I'm a deadhead I'm a deadhead music fan and I found myself going to shows and hating everyone around me. I left a show once before it even started and cried all the way home, 
realizing that I was no longer able to feel okay with myself and the world around me. And I was unable to make connections with anyone. A guy I had dated briefly when I had been drinking was in AA. What a turnoff at the time, laugh out loud. And we stayed in touch. I contacted him to ask him how he could handle things without being able to drink. He said his participation in AA and working steps with a sponsor made him get down to the nitty gritty and he's better every day or at least able to confront his feelings with a support system and also have people to connect with. So off I went to my first meeting and here I am. Thanks for your doing your beautiful service, Jill. Well, thank you, Jill, for writing in and thank you for your Oh, just uh, sticking with it. And, you know, I'm thinking about your uh, uh, ex-boyfriend in there and about how we really never know what sort of seeds we are planting, do we? Anyway, all right. Ian writes in. He says, hi, John. Thanks for your podcast. I really appreciate it. I am a French Canadian sober guy. Well, we, we. Sorry, 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 so, so, sorry. Anyway, a French Canadian, a French Canadian sober guy who's working as an expat around the world. Most of the time, there is not a meeting around where I work, so I discover your podcast, and you are now my meeting. Thanks for your good work, and keep it up, Ian. Oh my goodness, Ian. Well, I'm so glad we can fill that gap when you're not able to make it to meetings, and uh, thank you so much for writing in. Margot writes in, and Margot says, Hello, I live in western Tennessee. As of today, I have three months sober. Prior to this, I had 12 years, and then I relapsed. I found your sobriety by listening, I found your podcast by listening to David G on the four step. I'm so grateful to have found these episodes, Margot C. So, oh my goodness. You know, Margot, by the grace of God, um, I had I only had a, a three years in and out myself. Um, I never had anything like twelve years sobriety. I only had six months or so, and I would go back out. But uh, we're all just doing this one day at a time, and I'm so glad that you found it back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And finally, folks. I am going to write what Catherine wrote. I am going to read what Catherine wrote in. And uh, this is last but not least. Miss Catherine wrote in and she says, Hi, John. I just listened to episode number 76 today. I am so glad you are not a brick and mortar storefront as I would walk on by your window displays. Talk about judging a book by its cover. Just when I think I can't gleam anything from a particular episode, you prove me wrong every time. Lessons learned once again. Don't rely on the description of the episode. There is always so much more once you open your eyes, ears, heart, and mind. My pen is always at my side on the work table when I listen to your podcast so I can jot down a few notes. You never disappoint with your topic selection. 
You mentioned that you have a rough outline for episode notes, but most of it, you just wing it. Well, you are very creative in your delivery and transparent if you ever make an error. Your natural ease and what you lead interviewees is apparent, and you have increased that ease from your early shows. (laughs) I can attest to that. Your relaxed armchair approach is welcome is a welcome timeout for me during some of my very stressful days at the office. Please continue your blend of entertainment mixed with education for the new and seasoned recovery audience as you put a little smiley face, some namaste hands, and a big heart. Well, God bless you, Miss Catherine. You certainly did make my day, and uh, you know I'm I, I'm like you guys. I'm I'm I, you know I still struggle with resentment and fear and dishonesty and selfish. I always think I'm an imposter putting out these various episodes, and I think one day everyone's gonna figure me out and go and listen to some real episodes, so to speak, by some real podcasters, but. Uh, You know, I do. I just do a little prayer before I start this every time, and you get what you get. And uh, thank you so much, Miss Catherine, for writing in. Until next week, folks, God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your week. I love you. Thanks for tuning in.